Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we are joined by Jack Murray, the CEO of Media HQ. Jack, you're very welcome to the show. Irene, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Jack, uh, chatting off air, typical fashion with this podcast, focus in three areas, early influences, challenges, pivotal moments, no different with you. Back to the beginning, you grew up in Ballonaslow, Galway. Any standout favorite memories from growing up out west? Yeah, um, I, I grew up in a shop. We, family business is a shop, uh, farm supplies business that was started back by my great-grandfather, would you believe, in the 1880s. And um, it was always very busy. Um, we were always surrounded by business. Uh, the shop was next door to the house. Um, it was a very colourful place. Um, there was always something happening. Um, my kind of social network when in the 1980s when I grew up was you'd come home from school, you'd wolf down your dinner, and you'd run next door to the shop to see what happened during the day. And uh, I suppose that's how I got all my early grounding in business. Um, it was tough. The business in the 1980s was tough. And, uh, you know, there was tough things happened. Um, remember once, uh, you know, the business was 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 burgled um, in the 1980s and, and things like that. But uh, it was it was all we knew. And it was definitely it, it, it definitely whet my appetite for getting involved in business. And when I look at where my career has gone since then, it was also very fun uh, growing up in a small town. Um, when you grow up in a small town, you think it's the center of the universe. And uh, I'm very, I'm kind of fascinated by the ecosystem of a town and always have been since. And it, it saddens me really to see the decline of the Irish town. And, you know, a town like Banisloe in the 1980s when I grew up and as it is today are two completely different things. And I remember being a very vibrant place. I remember at the weekends and Saturday, um, a busy market town where it would fill up with people from the countryside coming in and going up to meet your friends and um, and that real buzz at the centre of town and uh, that's gone now. But uh, it was very it was very happy. Uh, it was it was a very happy place growing up uh, for those reasons. Touched on your uh, grandparents owning a shop uh, or been in the family that long. Um, mm. Who do you think inspired you or influenced the most while you were growing up? Um, the obvious answer is your parents but um like i think your childhood comes in your you know your your progression comes in in different ways um it was never any doubt to me that i wanted to work in business and it actually goes back further than my grandparents my great-grandparents um so my great-grandfather john murray um was was one of a very large family and uh in 1886 um it was a very difficult time in Irish history because um, there was a lot of uh, people being evicted from the land uh, and they were from a very uh, small, poor farm just outside Banisloe. Banisloe is on the border between Galway and Roscommon, so it was in South Roscommon. And he had a decision to make at 29 years of age and um, he decided that he was going to uh, leave and try and save the family farm and uh, he hit for America. And he arrived in New York on Palm Sunday 1886 and uh, we don't really know what happened to him um, 
but something amazing happened because he got an idea for a business and he came back a number of years later and went to the main street in Banaslow and um, bought a premises that's now a, a public house and uh, started the family business. And that's the business that my brother and my mother um, run today. And I suppose that that was the biggest kind of spark for me um, in, in getting into business. Um, when you're surrounded by it and when you look around and when generations upon generations of people in your family have paddled their own canoe, have sorted their own pro problems out, have been self-driven and, uh, you know, know the power of hard work. Like my, my mother and father would work you under the table and, uh, you know, that's all I saw. And I suppose the other thing that I saw a lot of growing up was, you know, the, if the phone rang in our house and it was a customer, like from knee high, you knew to be very polite, to do what they wanted, to help them out in any way you could. And that was ingrained in me from a, from a very early age and uh, had a big influence on me. I released a new podcast, 45 minutes in length, every single day and have been doing it since the start of this year. And one thing that comes up as a common trend is the effect uh, people have on us throughout our early years. I bring this up because uh, there's a story you tell about a guy called Michael O'Grady and the summer of 1984. Um, I've also never felt uh, quite as a sporty kid growing up and I was definitely always picked last as well. Do you mind sharing that story and the effect? No, I don't. Uh, you do, you, well done on your research. Uh, Michael O'Grady was um, a primary school, is a primary school teacher, retired primary school teacher from outside Banaslow. And uh, my, my dad played rugby and uh, it was, I always wanted to be, love sport, um, absolutely love sport to this day, love cycling, love every sport, love hurling. Um, and... Uh, but I was never much good at anything as a kid and would have been one of those kids that was picked last. And um, in 1984, uh, Bannonslow had a very good reputation in underage rugby. And Michael O'Grady was the rugby coach. And uh, they had a very good community games program that runs still to this day. And uh, a lot of people from Bannonslow, Michael O'Grady, Carmel Greeley, um, would have worked in the national community games. And um, it came to try out for the under 11 rugby team. And I kind of expressed a preference to do that. And I would have been the kid in Gaelic football and hurling soccer. I would always have been left. And it's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling when the, the group divides and two captains are picked and you know your name isn't going to be called kind of any time soon. And uh, went to the first few training sessions and uh, they had to pick a squad for the community games. And got a sense that things were were going well and Michael O'Grady was always very good to encourage us and you know to, to get us involved and on one fateful night I'm like I'm 47 years of age now so it was 37 years ago it was the final trial and we had to go up to the pitches in, in Garbley uh, to play a match and they were going to pick the team and uh, everything went well that night everything went great I scored two tries um, I got picked on the team and we went on this unbelievable journey where the team the year before us had got knocked out in County Galway by a team from Clare Galway. So they were our kind of nemesis team. We bet them, we won the county final, we won the Connacht final, we won the prize of going to uh, the national finals, which were held up in Meath in Mosney then. And uh, we all hit off on this mad adventure. 
we won the All-Ireland semi-final really easily. I remember we beat your team from Donegal um, by, I think, nine tries to one. And we met a team from Knot Line in the final. And uh, it was a draw at, 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 at the end of normal time. And it went to three periods of extra time, would you believe? And the ball broke loose. One of the guys from that line caught it, ran the length of the field, scored the try, and we had lost the All-Ireland final. Everyone was devastated. And I was there, Rian, and I was delighted. And I kind of said to the lads, look, I remember them all telling me to shut up. I said, look, guys, we had a great year. Look at the friendships we made. Look at, look at all that we did. And like, it was such a formative experience for me in, I suppose, leadership, in being chosen, in being trusted. Um, and the year after our team, they went and they won the thing. And uh, still to this day, the guys that were on the team the year after, I met them a couple of years ago at a wedding. We were having a couple of drinks um, before the music kicked in and they were still slagging us going, ah, you know, 85, we did it in 85, you didn't do it in 84. And we were having a laugh about it. But uh, yeah, it was a very formative experience. And I suppose it gave me confidence then that, you know, I could do things. And I went on to play rugby until I was 20. I went to a rugby school and um, that was the sport in which I got picked. And there was some really good role models in our school. Kieran Fitzgerald captained an Irish Triple Crown team in 1985 uh, he was a former student of our school and other people came along as well and it was a very good pathway for I suppose developing as a person developing within a team structure and still to this day my, my kids play camogie my two daughters and uh, you know I never let them out of a team training session and they say why why dad why are you so insistent on this and I say because it's not about you it's about everybody else and I said when you don't show up I said everybody else is affected and that's the team dynamic and I suppose that's that's what I learned through that. I also know that you've just touched on you're a father to two daughters a dog owner um been yeah. to places like New York I'll forgive you for this but you're a Galway GA fan I'm a Kilkenny fan hence why I'll forgive you um <laughs> what's, uh, what's one thing you're into or curious about that not a lot of people would know about you? Um what that I'm into that not a lot know about me. Um, I once cycled the stage of the Tour de France. Um, I like things that are hard. Um, I love cycling long distances. Um, I go out to Wicklow and I seek the hardest and steepest hills and I try and cycle up and down them. And uh, um, I really, I really love doing that. Yeah. Um, I like pushing myself physically. Um, um, I love cold water. Um, I love getting into the sea, get in December. Um, and uh, I always joke with people when, when you get to uh, cold water that they, uh, they say, it's really cold here. And I say, yeah, that's, that's why we're here. So you go to the mountains, <laughs> you go to the mountains on the bike for the pain and you go to the water for the cold and uh, you, go for what you, you go for what's there in abundance. So if you're not into the pain, climbing a mountain, don't do it. If you're not into the cold, don't get into the sea. And uh, it's a brilliant transaction if that's what you're there for. Agreed. I'm a fan of both of them too. Um, you're into storytelling. Mm. What is it about storytelling? I know that you've had some shows where you talk about the likes of the plane landing on the Hudson River to, I'm sure you, you leverage storytelling in your own business and previous businesses to connect with people. What is it about it? 
Um, well, I suppose all my professional career has been about storytelling. So from, um, I, when I left college, I studied marketing. Um, the story spark that was lit in me when I look back at my life and kind of, you know, see where it came from. It came from my father and it came from that story I told at the start about my great grandfather going on this journey to save the family to New York. And I suppose that that lit a spark in me and it kind of really fascinated me. And it was, you know, there's a, a portrait of him in our living room taken in the 1880s. And um, the notion that, you know, a story about someone's endeavor 150 years ago um, could really, you know, still be fresh and true and um, uh, powerful today. Um, I worked in, I studied marketing in college. I worked in product marketing. And then I, I suppose I got, I came to a junction in my career very early on. I had a great job in the marketing department in Debarry Shoes, uh, which was based in Banslow. And um, I, I wanted to do something that had a creative spark in it. Um, I didn't fully know then that it, it, I wanted a career that was full of stories, but I, on a fateful day, I had an interview for to be a news reporter on a local radio station called Shannon Side, and I had an interview place for a postgraduate course in what was the DIT then um, in journalism. I didn't get the job, but I got a place on the journalism course. And Reen, I remember the first day going in, sitting in the room, looking round and realizing, having this great sense, this is the right place for me. I have arrived where I need to be. Uh, it was a wonderful year and um, some of my colleagues from the class are still involved in journalism. Patrick Frayne, the Irish Times was, uh, was, a, was a classmate of mine and um, I suppose from, from, that was a spark. That, that, that kind of gave me a, a boost. Um, I, I did a couple of writing jobs. My original aim was to be a radio journalist and then pretty quickly um, I got a call one day from the university um, and it was the course director and it was probably the biggest break. It is the biggest break I ever got in my career. And he said, I've just got a call from the Progressive Democrats. They're looking for a new press officer um, and they wanted me to recommend someone. And he said, I know you love politics. Um, I'm going to recommend you. Um, how do you feel about that? And I said, great. And like the following day, I was in government buildings doing an interview. And three or four days later, I had an interview with Mary Harney and I got the job. And I suppose from that day to this, my life and my career have been full of stories. And when you work in the media, um, you realize very quickly, you know, on days that you really struggle, you think, if only I had a better story today, everything would be better. And, and the currency that journalists work on is how good is the story you're working on? How good is the story you're telling? And then I've taken that through my career, through working in corporate communications, through setting up Media HQ, um, to setting up All Good Tales, the storytelling agency, through some of the podcasts I've done as well. And um, there is no better way to communicate than with the story. And uh, it is the only thing that matters when it comes to resonating with an audience. Um, and it's a riddle. Uh, every situation is different. Uh, there's a set of tools and techniques that you can learn, but you know every application of them is different. And I suppose that's what fascinates me about storytelling. From 1997, journalism and DIT to today, you've been heavily involved in media uh, in some way, shape or form. 
you've once said about Twitter, referencing Twitter, that the gatekeepers have now been done away. What did you mean by that? Um, I think the, 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 the power of the media has passed from the corp from the corporation to the individual. So um, everybody now has a computer in their pockets more powerful than the computer that sent the first person to the moon. And everyone is a publisher. Um, so everybody has the power and the ability to tell a story. Um, it used to be the case that you needed a huge radio mast or you, you know, you needed a big printing press. You don't, you don't need that anymore. You need um, uh, a thousand committed people to a cause and you can change the world. And um, I'll give you an example. I, uh, the last cycle I did was a few days ago. I'm, 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 I'm uh, where I'm sitting here today is I'm, uh, I'm about a mile from Mizzen Head and uh, my good friend, Kieran Cannon, who is an ultra cyclist and a Fine Gael TD, um, he decided that he was going to cycle um, the length of Ireland. I was going to attempt to cycle the length of Ireland in under 24 hours. Wow. And it was a mad idea. And I kind of said, can I come for the first stage? So I, I went with them on Saturday and I cycled 100 kilometers away and I cycled back. So I did 200 kilometers, but these guys did 600 kilometers. And that story or that drive to do that for a, a children's charity called Hand in Hand has raised tens of thousands of euros for that charity. And it was the story, it was the endeavor, it was, you know, I got back here at seven o'clock on Saturday night and they had a live tracker and I kept checking it and I kept checking it. And I woke at six o'clock on Sunday morning saying, where are they? Are they nearly there? And it was just the excitement around, could they get there? And they got there with half an hour, 35 minutes to spare. They did it in 23 hours and, and 25 minutes. And if, if, I, I think the power is now there for people to tell great stories. And look, we all know about the tools and whether it's TikTok or Twitter or Instagram or your own platform or podcast, um, you know, there's never been a better time for niche topics, niche audiences, um, for people to find their tribe and grow their tribe and connect with them. Um, and I suppose it's the golden age. It's a golden age for telling stories as a result. I spoke to uh, Paul Farrell from Virgin Media uh, three, four weeks ago. One of the things that came up in conversation was around media companies building trust. That That's one of the focuses. How do you think that uh, either traditional or online media companies can build trust with their clientele or customers? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, the, funny, the funny thing about like that, and you, you learn it very early, you learn, you learn it before you go into study journalism or media, media school. Um, the first one is uh, tell the truth, tell the truth. When you study journalism, you're always told that the currency in which you deal with is the truth. And when you're public relations, um, the currency in which you deal with is information, but underpinning that is the truth. And the minute you veer away from that, um, it's a very, very dangerous place. Um, so I suppose that's the first thing, tell the truth. Um, I'm reading um, a brilliant book. At the minute, I was reading it last night about um, one of these new social media agencies called Bellingcat. The book is called This is Bellingcat, where people, use, it's a social media news agency. And what they do is they go out and they authenticate information on crises, on, on wars, on, on conflicts. But, you know, trust is about um, 
is about believing in things. It's about the truth. It's about how people treat each other. It's about respect. Um, I just came off um, an email exchange with someone that I want to do business in, and I met them uh, on Zoom last week, and they said, do you want a non-disclosure agreement? And I said, no, I don't. I don't. I said, uh, uh, I appreciate you met me last week. And I said, we're exploring this opportunity, and uh, I trust you. And I said, uh, you know, there's no point in having an NDA. And I learned, I learned that from my mother and father and that you take people as you see them and um, trust is a two-way street. So I think you have to be open and you have to be giving. So I think you have to be able to receive people. And I think you have to, and <clears throat> for all the negativity online and social media, there's a lot of positivity as well. And I think it's about trust, it's about respect, and it's about building relationships. And I think all of the media can learn that. You started this podcast a while back and you gather listeners show by show interaction by interaction good guest by good guest story by story um and that's how you roll the rock up the hill there's no magic in it there's no like there's no magic button in it um but it's about doing the right things and doing them over and over um again and, and having that kind of at the, at the base of what you do what do you think going into the next decade or at the beginning of the next decade, what do you think is the biggest, potentially the biggest hurdle that online media will have to overcome? Um, I think they'll look at, I think there'll continue to be fragmentation. I think, um, I think some of the big publishers and broadcasters, um, I think the big guys will get bigger. I think there's a group in the middle who have legacy cost and legacy issues who if they can sort out those legacy um, issues of, of high cost, you know, will run into trouble. I still think, you know, if you look at the modern newspaper, there's probably 14 or 15 um, types of income um, that newspapers need to be tapping into now. Uh, we had a guest speaker um, at Media HQ. Um, we do a culture talk once a month about what making the news means. And we had a speaker a couple of uh, weeks ago and like the most profitable thing the New York Times run now is their gap year program. So they run this gap year program where they're journalists lecture and they give this unbelievable experience in New York and it costs somewhere between 20 and $25, 20 and $25,000 for to do it. So that's an innovative product. It's not journalism. Um, and between podcasts, newsletters, um, I think if you're adaptable, like, look, I started Media HQ and it was a printed media directory. It was a spiral bound book. And uh, we're now a software as a service product that uses AI, big data, and we, we analyze information. And we've gone on a journey from, so when, when I hear traditional media people, you know, playing a violin and crying about the way things are, I say, look, put it, put away the violin and just, you know, start embracing the world the way it is and stop wishing it was the way you wanted it to be, because there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and, I, and I also think for media companies, it's a journey and it's a journey about tuning into your audience. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're selling widgets or you're running a local newspaper, there's a way to connect with your audience. And the tools have changed, they've got cheaper, they've got more agile, they've got more mobile, but you have to be willing to go on the journey. Like one of my mantras in Media HQ is, if change is what you do, not what happens to you, you'll be okay. And uh, I think there's a lot to learn in that for a lot of media companies. You've touched on it a few times, but you haven't necessarily said exactly what it is. What is Media HQ? I'll leave links to it below, by the way. Yeah, so Media HQ is a software as a service platform and we help P 
PR and communications people, find journalists, build media lists and distribute press releases. So if you listen to a news bulletin in Ireland, UK, a large proportion of the press releases that will have gone from PR comms teams to journalists will have originated the media HQ. So I'll give you an example. Um, Dublin Airport, a DAA are really good clients of ours. If they're issuing a press release today, they log into Media HQ, they have a whole list of saved media lists, uh, they distribute their press release through the platform, it'll come from their email address, um, all of the analytics around the send, all of the research um, and all the technology, we do all of that. And uh, they pay, companies pay us a fee uh, for 12 months for access to the platform and they manage all of their outbound uh, through the software. Well, that's a pretty cool tool for those who are interested in it. As I said, I'll leave links to it below. Coming towards the yeah. end of the, the, the interview, uh, if you were to ever to write a book, uh, what would the title be? Well, I have written a book and uh, the book is coming out uh, in October. Uh, and the title of the book is, um, it's called The Magic Slice, um, How to Master the Art of Storytelling for Business. And... The magic slice at Reen is something I discovered in my work with Media HQ. So as you can imagine, Media HQ is like this kind of industrial factory where I have a screen in my office where I can see the news being shared just before the journalists look into it. And a number of years ago, just when the 100,000 story was being shared on the platform, I had a bit of an epiphany and it was about the true nature of storytelling and why it's so, so powerful. And the magic slice basically is two circles. One is what you want to talk about, and the other is what people are interested in. And the magic slice is where the two circles intersect. Um, and in the book, um, I talk about uh, what is storytelling, uh, um, what's the science behind it, um, how to structure a story. I'll go through the six-step magic slice process for brands and companies, and like how do you find your magic slice and how do you tune into it? And then at the end of the book, I give examples and case studies of how to use storytelling in your everyday work from presenting to running brand newsrooms to how do you engender a story culture in your organization and uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a while it's uh, it's been knocking around and when the when the pandemic hit I had two objectives I said I was going to get fit and I was going to write the book and thankfully I've managed to do both. I will certainly purchase it. I've been fascinated with storytelling ever since my father wrote a book on storytelling probably about a decade ago. So you can count me in to purchase a copy of it. Um, I don't know if there's a pre where people can like pre buy it or like pre purchase it. If there is, I'll leave a link to that below as well. Yeah, it, it'll, it'll, it's, um, it, it's currently, I'm actually waiting to talk to the designer today or tomorrow about the cover design and my projected date for it to. His, uh, his purchase is about October. Okay, awesome. Well, I wish you nothing but the best with that book. Uh, two more final questions for you. Uh, and and be honest in this one, what do you think the chances are of Galway winning the All-Ireland this year in Hurling? I think they're actually quite good. I wasn't very hopeful last year, but I'm, I'm you know, like I, I think... I think they'll be there at the end. I think I'm always very realistic about the teams that I follow, and uh, uh, I think we've a, we've a good chance this year. I think it's between ourselves, Limerick, and uh, Tipperary, from what I can see now. And uh, I just sneak and feeling about us this year. I feel good about it. It will be an interesting one if Kilkenny go and meet in the Leinster final because it won't just be for the Leinster final; it will be for the league title as well, which 
Is yes, schedule. that magic competition that didn't have a final. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, final question is, I'd like you to imagine it's the year 2030 and you're looking back on the last decade. So we're now talking as if it's the year 2030. Uh, you can answer this personally or professionally, but what would you like to be looking back on? Um, I'd like to be looking back on my two daughters as confident, healthy, happy young women um, advanced in their, their life and, and, and happy and content to be still, you know, happily married and delighted with my life and all of that. Um, to be CEO of, a, I suppose, a dynamic information company called Media HQ and uh, that has grown internationally and to have written a few more books, um, to have written at least two more books, I would say. And uh, if I could achieve that, it'd be brilliant. Jack, it's been a pleasure. I wish you nothing but the best going forward. But for now... Thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Ray. Beautiful morning. Get a sun my morning, baby.